Okay, my clock's a little different than the clock on the wall, so isn't it good to be back together? Yeah. Some of you are real detailed people, so can you tell me if somebody knows when was the last Sunday we did? March 8th? Yeah. It was March 8th? Yeah, yeah. Because I brought Taco Casserole and I was telling Paul, I don't think we should be doing this. We have a casserole call, so it was March 8th, and the board talk, I'm thinking like two weeks or four weeks, maybe, and then we moved back to three months. I was able to. You want to do it again? Vote for the governor. Believe that. 
Or is this kind of taking God by surprise into a what? I'm going to have to regroup and kind of figure out how am I going to work through this? He knew this was coming. He knew what was going on. And we're going to be talking more about the Lord's Prayer this morning and how our prayers should reflect that, that we have a sovereign God and what all encompasses that. So let's open up the prayer this morning as we, as we begin. Let's pray. Father, it's been three months since we've been able to stay. And sit in this building and sing praise to you and pray to you together as a Lord Jesus. We want to thank you that we can be here, that you allow us to gather. We know that there's politics involved in this COVID virus. We know that there's politics involved in a lot of things, but we also know that you are sovereign and what you decree will prevail. And you have allowed us to gather, and it was just two weeks ago that we prayed specifically that we'd be able to meet in church. And through, through you working through the hearts and minds of our leaders, we're here. And we thank you for that. And we want to return and be a thankful people and say, thank you, Jesus, that we can meet in this house again. And we pray for our neighboring churches that they too would be able to meet soon. And they will be just as happy to get together, whether there's hundreds or thousands, they're going to be happy to be able, be able to get together. So. We're just the first wave, and we want to thank you that we can be here, and we pray that the praises we sing would be sweet music to you and to you alone. In Christ's name, amen. And you guys, good morning, Marcus. Can you hear us on Zoom? We yeah. can. We can. I think that's enough. You can. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
As I mentioned a little earlier, if uh, people would like to give their offering now, they can do that if they want to wait until after the, the whole service is over. Do that. So hopefully this particular style won't be lasting a long time. But for now, we're just going to do it this way. It's safest. It makes people feel the most comfortable. You don't need revivals. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and we have, in the past, we have did what I call a run-up on what the, the Lord's Prayer is going to look like, and we've done a whole lot of background on it, what it looks like. We've talked about, as you can see in your notes, I kind of gave a summary of what the characteristics of the Old Testament prayers look like, and there was a whole lot there, so I just thought, you know, I'm going to print it, and that way people can see it that I gave numerous examples of prayer in the Old Testament, including adoration, thanksgiving, recognition of God's glory and holiness, submission with obedience, confession of sin, prayer was collective, and perseverance with humility. And I kind of went through those and kind of rapidly, and I don't expect you to memorize those. But what I'm trying to do is lay the groundwork, the, ground, uh, the framework, and the foundation for what was prayer like in the Old Testament, and then how should we look at the Lord's Prayer in the New Testament? <clears throat> All of us here, pretty much, are old enough to remember there was a time in our nation's history when the name it and claim it health and wealth movement was alive and well. It was alive and well. It was a mentality which said, you ask or demand, whichever way you want to look at it, you ask or demand from God, and God has to give it. You can name it and claim it, and somehow God is obliged to deliver the goods to you. The primary problem with this view is that man is sovereign, and God is his servant. We, you and I, would be in the demand and the command position, and God is in the servant position where he needs to fulfill the requests. And I believe this mentality is nothing more than spiritual justification for self-indulgent sin. I don't believe it's theoretical, it's theological at all, not at all. And it was alive and well when Robert Schuller was head of the Crystal Cathedral, but it went ironically bankrupt in October of 2010. 
And this particular name it and claim it philosophy has diminished, but there are others who have picked up the torch and they're kind of carrying it. And we don't need to go into who they are, but they have the philosophy that God wants you wealthy, prosperous, and healthy. Well, that sounds really, really good. But is it biblical? And I submit that it's not. And I can at least give you several, several examples as we're going through this message where scripture does uh, address this. Jesus, the, uh, well, let, me, let me back up. The reason, one of the reasons I looked at the Old Testament is to show you that Jesus is reestablishing the original divine design for prayer, which had been over time lost in Israel. That's why he was so incredibly hard on the people in the Sermon on the Mount, where they would be hypocritical. And I mentioned last week in the Zoom, Zoom uh, message that you would have rabbis that stand on wide, very traveled, very visible street corners and pray for three hours because they want to be seen by, by men. So Jesus really harpoons these people. And, and as I said last week, our prayer should be to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to take a look, a pretty close look, at the Lord's Prayer. And for some of you, you may be going, you know, I mean, how much can be in there? How much can be in there? Well, I want to give you an example of a, a place where I was for, was firmly in for decades, and that would be in drunk driving arrests. And so I gave you a quote of the, of the law as it would be written on a charge, and that, that charge would be, and I wrote it in your notes, driving while under the influence of, driving while under the influence of, and affected by, intoxicating liquor and or drugs with a .08 or more breath alcohol. Folks, I'm, I'm telling you that I'm going to look at the Lord's Prayer closely and see what it has to say. What I just read to you, that DUI statute, can be litigated for weeks on one charge. It can go on. It can go places you never thought it would go. You can digest this thing so into such tiny bites, it's just ad nauseum. It could be the the finest sleep you've ever had. It is, first of all, it's driving. And I'm going to make this really quick. It's driving. You can't arrest somebody for drunk on the sidewalk. What if they're parked in a parking lot? They're not driving. What if they're parked and passed out at a stoplight on the road? They're not driving. They're not driving. So it gets very complicated, right? Make someone drive. That's pretty simple. Not necessarily. What if somebody is being pulled by someone else? The vehicle's disabled, it can't run. But you have a, a tractor that's pulling the vehicle and pulling it to another location, and the person is, that's not on the tractor, he's in the car, he's driving. The vehicle's not able to run because he's driving. I'm not going to give you my answers to these. These are all the things that they talk about. So it gets really complicated really fast. And then it goes driving while under the influence of or affected by. Oh, that's a big deal. That's a big, big deal. Everybody looks at it while somebody's falling down on their feet. Obviously, they're drunk. What if they're way less than that? What if they're way, way, way less than that? But they, they never drink. But they're affected because it says and affected by. So now you have a little bit of subjectiveness going into it. But then it tries to make that subjectiveness be a little bit more objective. As the intoxicating liquor can't be just anything. It's got to be intoxicating liquor and or drugs. Well, what if they're prescription drugs? They're, they're okay by your doctor. They're fine. They've been given. You're supposed to take it. With a 0 .08, 0 0.08 or more breath alcohol, then that gets into the reliability and accuracy and precision of the breath test instrument. And it's not a blood separate deal. That's a whole other can of worms we're not going to get into. It's a breath test. And how do you know you have to reliable breath test? So you don't want to know. You don't want to know. Okay. So I could go on, I could go on this whole time, the whole time we have allocated for a message and talk just about this and all the nuances and all of the rabbit trails that would take you. What I want to do is take a close look 
at the Lord's Prayer in the same way and take it phrase by phrase. And what does it mean? And what are the implications of it? Where does it take you? What, what should that be for us? The Lord's Prayer in itself is a skeleton. It was never meant to be continuously recited by day after day, because if it were, it would seem reasonable that the disciples who were around Jesus a lot, they would have heard him reciting this prayer over and over, and they would have adopted it, and they would have started reciting it themselves. So this is a framework of what our prayers should look, up, look like, and as believers, we're to flesh it out with our own words of praise, adoration, and petitions, etc., this is not a substitute for our own prayers, but a guide for them. So you're going to see in the handout, there's a focus on verse 9 and 10, and there's two parts. There's initially two parts to the Lord's Prayer. The first part is His name, His kingdom, His will. It's all about Him. The beginning and the end of this prayer focus on each of these points, not with getting what I want and not getting what I think I need, but about elevating his name. That's what it's all about. Everything in this prayer revolves around who God is, what he wants, and how he is to be glorified. Prayer is affirming God's sovereignty, his righteousness and majesty and seeking to conform our desires and our purposes to his will and his glory. So your prayers should line up, first of all, with his name, his kingdom, and his will. And I'm going to give you three stark examples of that in the Old Testament where we see that people did just that. The first one is in Jeremiah, and it shows in your notes, it's Jeremiah 32, 17 through 22. What we have here is Jeremiah is a current prophet for Israel, and he is, he is in prison, although I would say it's a relatively nice prison. As the scripture said, he is confined in the courtyard of the guard in the palace. Court, confined in the courtyard of the guard in the palace. So it doesn't seem like he's in a dungeon, but nevertheless, he is confined and he cannot go out and about. By our ministry standards, his, his work has been a complete failure. A complete failure. Nobody wants to listen to him. Nobody wants to hear what he has to say. They're not interested in anything that he has to offer, and ultimately, they throw him in a pit. He has no measurable success in his ministry. Okay, that's the backdrop. He has no measurable success. And he prays to the Lord in Jeremiah 32. And remember that I said the Lord's Prayer is a skeleton for us that we would fill in with our own words. And we are to start with his name, his kingdom, and his will. Here's what Jeremiah says, start, says starting in verse 17. Ah, O oh Lord, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your arch, arch, outstretched arm. Bear in mind, his ministry by our standards was a zero. Nobody wants to listen to him. And they just put him in confinement. They do not want to hear what he has to say. It goes on. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all of the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and to this day in Israel and among all mankind, made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror, and you have gave them this land, and you swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's a guy that's in distress. He's lonely and he's in despair, 
and yet his ministry and his prayer is preoccupied to lift up the name of God in glory, to, to magnify it, to honor it. That is what his prayer says. And folks, he is by our standards a zero. His ministry is, is a flop. They don't want to hear what he has to say. And this is how he prays. Remember, I started out with the name it and claim it theology that we command it and God is the servant and gets it. In this particular passage in Jeremiah, there's no preoccupation with his own pain or his own circumstances. There's no preoccupation with name it and claim it. Daniel, the second one, Daniel 9. Daniel's in a very difficult position. He's in Babylon at the time, and he has just had a dream in chapter 8 where he sees there's going to be a transition between two great world powers. Daniel, as I said, with himself and his people have been dispossessed. They're in a foreign land. And Daniel understands there that Israel is going to be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And verse 3 of this section states that Daniel sent his face to the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes and made confession. And in, this is the background. Back, backdrop. He's in captivity. They're going to be there for 70 years. They're stuck. He knows there's going to be a transition between one great power to another great power. And now, with that as the backdrop, he's going to pray. And he says, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keep covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he goes on. That's how he starts his prayer. The initiation of prayer goes with an affirmation of his nature, of the glory of God and the greatness and the majesty of God. It always gives the perspective very clearly. The one who is praying realizes that they're not in charge. God is in charge and God is glorious. He is holy, and I'm praying in line with his will. And we're going to be talking about his will a little bit later on. The third one is Jonah. Jonah. <clears throat> Jonah is in the middle of the belly of a fish, and, and, and what we would we could agree it would be an inconceivable place. In fact, it says in Jonah that he was there and it was dark and he had seaweed wrapped around him. Now, I can't envision that. And I don't know what that would be like, but I can envision when I was a kid, uh, I didn't think I walked in my sleep, but I guess I did. Because one day I woke up, I was standing there and I woke up and it was black as a bucket of coal. It, I mean, I, I stood there and I went like this. To see if I could see my hand, there was nothing. I could see, and my eyes were activated because I'd been in the dark. I could see nothing. All I knew was I was standing somewhere in pitch black. And I can assure you folks, I can absolutely assure you that I did not say what Jonah says. He goes, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Not, not what I said. Not what I said. You walk around literally like a blind man until I found the wall, and then I pretty much sure moved over to the wall, and I found the doorknob. I was in a completely separate story room, way away from my bedroom. I was like, this is not good. But it was downstairs, so you couldn't fall out. <laughs> so we have, we have here that. Jonah is in the middle of a mess. He's in the belly of a fish, and he prays with a voice of thanksgiving. He says, I will, I will pay my vows. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And there is no pleading. There's no begging. There's no name it and claim it. He was simply extolling the character of God, and that is what the Lord teaches us in his prayer. So that gives you a bit of a backdrop 
It gives you an idea of where I'm going. So now we're going to start at the very beginning of the prayer where it says, Our Father, our Father who art in heaven, verse 9b. First of all, God is our Father, and this should tell us a host of things. This is the basis for our boldness in prayer. He is not only our king and our judge, he's our creator, but he's our father as well. And that gives us a sense of access, and it gives us a sense of intimacy, because we are allowed into his presence as sons or daughters, just like an earthly father would allow you into their presence as sons or daughters. It says, God is the father of everyone. It says, our father who art in heaven. Well, our father is only true in that God is the father of all by creation. But God is not the father of those who are not believers. In fact, it is, it is quite the opposite. Jesus was talking to those Jewish leaders who opposed and rejected him. And he says, you are the father of the devil. That was John 8, verse 44. We are all, everyone is a father, is, is a son of God the Father in that he created us. But not that he is our spiritual father. Because those who reject the name of Jesus Christ has the devil as their father. Only to those who receive him did Jesus give the right become children of God, and says, even to those who believe on his name. Now, I want to I make a distinction, and this is a virtually a worldwide distinction, is when we say, our Father who art in heaven, it gives us intimacy, and it gives us closeness, it gives us access. I said that before, but I want to I emphasize that because virtually Every pagan god, and I can't give you one who's an exception, but I'm not going to say it's 100%, but it's all pagan god, worldwide, you approach them with the idea that they're angry, that they're displeased, or somehow you have to gain their attention. It's virtually every single time. It very, the pagans, when they worship or pray to their gods, their gods are seen, are seen as vengeful, angry, violent, unfair, unjust, they're cruel, they're jealous, and they're envious, and they have to be appeased. The word that came to my mind is pagan gods, virtually without exception, are seen as capricious, and capricious means they are given to sudden and unaccountable changes of mood or behavior. They're moody. You never really know what you're going to get. Contrast that with the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, is that you're his child, you have access, you have intimacy. He's not angry with you. He is not, he doesn't have to be appeased. You don't have to somehow cajole him or say a joke and get him in a good humor so that you can have a conversation with him. He is waiting for you to talk to him, unlike the pagans. And we have an illustration among Mount Carmel, when Elijah was with the 450 prophets of Baal, and the prophet and Elijah started making fun of him. Maybe he's on a trip, and maybe he's sleeping, and maybe you have to wake him up. And all the more, they cut themselves to appease the gods. Elijah didn't do that. In fact, he prayed very quietly. And then you know the rest of that story when the sacrifice is accepted, et cetera, et cetera. So when we say that God is our Father, we immediately have access. And you can think of it very much like if you have your earthly mother or your earthly father, and you come to their house, are they going to slam the door on you? Well, if you have a normal family, no. It is an abnormal family that would do something like that. Because normally parents would be happy to see their kids come. And for those kids in the back, and leave. 
It's always a good question. They always, they always come back. <laughs> they always come back. They never really leave. <laughs> when you look at the phrase, our father, the phrase, our father, appears only 14 times in the Old Testament. Only 14 times. And my father never occurs in the Old Testament. Not once. If God is seen as father in the Old Testament, he was, he is seen as the father of a nation, not as an intimate, loving father of an individual. But that changed in the New Testament. It changed when Jesus Christ came because Jesus called God his father over 70 times in the New Testament. And we see only one time one exception where Jesus did not call his father, my father. And that was when he was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was only one time. In fact, when Jesus raised, was raised from the dead, in John 20, he says, do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am, I am ascending to my father, and to your father, and to my God, and your God. So he made a very clear distinction. It changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So we can go to prayer with a sense of intimacy, boldness, and confidence because God is our Father. And because God is our Father of believers, it settles a number of issues, and I'm not going to belabor these, but I did have them written down for you for the most part. The first one is it settles the matter of fear. It settles the matter of fear. The ancient gods, as I told you before, were vengeful, jealous, and angry. That's not the case with our Heavenly Father, is it settles the matter of fear. God wants us to come to him and talk to him. It also settles the matter of hope. And there's a parallel that can be talked about here. Is what it says, it settles the matter of hope. A, a, a parable is given, and this parable is this. If a son asks for bread, will the father give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will the dad give him a snake? If then an earthly father knows how to give good gifts, how much more our heavenly father? That's the point, is it gives, it settles a matter of hope that we have a earthly father that knows how to give good things. How much more would a heavenly father know how to give good things? And that brings me to the point that I talked a little bit about this morning, and I says I'm going to talk about that later. Well, later is here now, is here's a phrase that we are all familiar with. God will do for us whatever we ask if it fits within his will. Well, that is true. But I came across a verse here the other day that clarified that is 1 John 3, verse 21. And I'm just going to play a couple verses. Is God will do for us whatever we ask if it fits within his will. But this is what the scriptures say. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. Because, he'll give us anything we ask, because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Well, that adds a little curve to it, I didn't expect. You mean, if God's going to do whatever I ask, then I do, I am obedient, I am submissive, I obey his commands, and if you don't, then the, it can be assumed that, no, you're probably not going to get all the things that you asked for. But we're going to continue on. And some of the things that, that we talked about, hallowing his name here in a minute, it's going to fit into this that if we get whatever we ask, what is the desire of our heart that we're asking? So we'll get into that here in a little bit. It settles the matter of loneliness because God is our Father and he sticks closer than a brother. It settles the matter of selfishness. And if you look at the Lord's Prayer, you will see six times there, there is a plurality. It says, our Father, our daily bread, 
our debts lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. And the reason I say this is we are not alone in this. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are also the children of God, and whatever is asked must embrace them as well. In other words, I'm not saying, God, give me what I want, no matter how it affects everybody else. That's all part of the equation, is there is a plurality here where our prayers will be answered, but there's also this taking into effect everybody else. As we go on, it settles the matter of resources in my life. God is our Father, settles the matter of resources. All the resources of heaven are available to us when we trust God as our Heavenly Father, and you and I are used, you're used to declining resources. We're used to natural resources diminishing. And I can give you a vast example. My brother is a, before he retired, he was a, uh, his, his specialty was exploration in gas and oil in Alaska. That was his specialty. And, I, and when I went sheep hunting with him a couple of times, we were like up to the hills for seven days. And you really got to like who you're hunting with because you're with them 24 hours a day. And there's nobody else. And if you don't like it, it's really bad. So we get along really well. And I said to him, I says, okay, girl, I said, I want to know, are you the guy that says X marks just bought grill here? And he starts off with this and he says, well, it's a team effort. A lot of people. I said, just cut. Just cut to the chip. Are you the guy who goes, well, yeah, me and Willie? I said, okay. So they go there to X marks the spot, and they they can spend the sky's limit. He told me the North Slope, we're all familiar with the North Slope, North Slope oil field. It's been located, tapped, drilled. It's there. We know what it is. 30% of it's been used. 30% of it back when is untainable. It's in, it's in crevices and whatever. And 30% is still left. And all of us would go, okay? It's the, this idea of diminishing resources, of things used up, winding down for disintegration. That is not the case spiritually. For us, we say, well, you know, we have a bank account, it was here, and now we spent it and started it, and now it's gone, okay? It's diminishing resources in whatever degree you apply it to anything. That is our life. Is we have so many years to, to live and, and they're slowly diminishing. And a few left and, and we die. We're all very accustomed to that. That is not the case with spiritual resources. There is a pouring out of resources out of heaven and there's a diminishing of none. And for us, we go, that doesn't compute. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. But that's a fact. It eliminates, it settles the matter of resources in my life. The next one is settles the matter of wisdom. We here, for the most part, are old enough to remember the line, and you'll fill it in. Father knows best. Father knows best. Exactly right. It's a TV show. And when I go to God the Father, I have the knowledge that he knows best. That's just the way it is. And finally, it settles the matter of obedience. As a son or a daughter is to be obedient to their father, we are to be obedient and obey the father as a father-son or father-child relationship. So I'm going to summarize what I've said in all these particular aspects. When we pray our father, what I'm really saying is this. God, I recognize that I'm your child. You love me, and I have intimate access to you. I realize that you have unlimited resources. I realize you have a family larger than myself who has needs. I realize that you will do what is best for me, and I need to obey you. And praying our Father means obedience to him. I want to give a passage in Matthew 10. You're very familiar with this passage, but I give you this passage to show you how important we are to we're not just one of many. He knows you intimately. Matthew says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from their father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of far more value than many sparrows. 
Let me give you a little fuller explanation of this. In the Greek, the Greek really means more than falling as in dying, although God does see when a sparrow dies. It has the sense, this word has the sense of uh, lighting or lights. And by that, I mean, it is better to say God knows every time a girl hops, every time it lights, every time it hops. God knows the state, it's the knowledge of God. There is an intimacy there. We are not lost in a crowd. So you think that God knows when a, when a sparrow hops, when it stops, or when it dies, and we are of much more value than a sparrow. Going on to the last part, hallowed be your name. First, our prayers are controlled by our recognition that God is Father, and second, they are controlled by recognition that God's name is to be hallowed. There are a few names that I'm going to go through pretty rapidly and make a sermon on each one of these, but that's certainly not my intent at all. Hallowed means to lift up, to honor. That's what it means in a whole lot of things. It means to, uh, well, let me give you an example of what it means. We, the first song that we sang, and I asked Peter, was I sing the mighty power of God. You're going to hallow the name of God in the words in this song. It says, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad, and built lofty skies. I sing the goodness of the Lord that fills the earth with food. He forms the creatures with his word and then pronounces them good. Lord, how thy wonders are displayed. Where'er I turn my eye, if I survey the ground I tread, or gaze upon the sky. That, in part, is hallowing the name of God. And God has several names, and the one is Elohim as creator. Elohim means creator, and he is responsible for the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, all living things. He formed man from the dust, and he breathed into him the divine life, a breath of life. Do you honor him as creator when you say, hallowed be your name? And I think I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a little editorial here. I'm talking about this for just a moment. I'm going to step over here, and I'm going to talk about this, and then I'm going to go back. I think we can all agree in the time that I've been at this church, it is rare, if ever, I recommend a movie. I got a movie, and it does just this. It honors the name of God. It's called I Still Believe about Jeremy Camp. You seen it, John? Yeah, we just watched it. Is that not a good movie? It was a killer, but it was a good movie. That, that movie exalts the name of God all the time. And it fits with what we're talking about, what prayer looks like. I still Jeremy Camp. Another name for uh, God in the how would be your name is El Elyon. It means God most high or ruler. It refers to him in his relationship and rule over heaven and earth. You honor God as ruler of the earth. You honor him or, and I'm not, I'm saying this generically, okay? We do not honor him when we complain about the state of the world or ask how we are ever going to get through this week, this month, or this year. We honor him when we acknowledge him as the one who does all things well, including caring for us and preserving us. And that is a reminder that is timely in this particular era with viruses and riots is God does all things well. And that does not mean that we disengage and just hold our hands up and say, God will take care of it. No, we are, we are to be engaged. But God has, in part, the meaning of his name is God most high, ruler. Another one is Jehovah, the name by which God feels himself as redeemer. And this redeemer, 
idea goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And who redeemed Eve? And redeemed means bought back from the slave market of sin. They bought you back. Redemption means God shed blood was paid to redeem you back. And he did this with Noah, with Abraham and seed. And he does it with each of us as after that Noah as Lord and Redeemer. He came as the one who is to redeem us. Another name is Adonai. It means Lord. Is he your Lord? Is he the one to whom you give your highest allegiance? Is he the one who directs your life? You cannot hallow him as Lord unless you do so practically. And one more. The name, probably the greatest name of all, is the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning Savior. You hallow his name and giving him the first place in your life. So I want to close with this. What does it mean to be hallowed? It means to set apart as sacred. It means to glorify or honor. And if we know, only know God as Father, you might lose a little bit of balance. God is also our King. He's our Lord, our mighty God, God of life and more. So how do you pray in such a way as to exalt God's name? And this is where I go back to the first John passage where it says if we are obedient, how do we pray in such a way to exalt God's name? By praying for his glory to be done, his glory to be accomplished and completed for his honor. My prayer is that God would do what I am asking if it brings glory to his name. You may be praying for a child or a relative or a physical problem, a job, or who knows what. But you should say, Lord, whatever will bring you glory, do that. Whatever will lift your name, extol you, draw people to you, further your cause, do that. So when we say in the scripture that he will answer your prayers, he will do everything that's according to his will. His will is that his name be glorified, lifted up, and honored. And when you say, I want this done in my life, and if this is going to bring you glory, God, please do it. But then there's the other side. Is I want you to do this in your life, and frankly, it won't do a thing for your name. But I'd really like you to do that. I'm not so sure he's going to do that. Because God is in the business of lifting up his own name. This is the opposite of the name it and claim it theology. Praying in this way does not glorify his name. It does not exalt his name. It does not lift him up. And it is to take God's name in vain. It is irreverent, it's bad theology, and it's sinful. We don't have a problem with name it and claim it here. But this gives you a path of how the Lord's Prayer gives you a skeleton of how you can pray. And when you look at our Father and all of its implications, hallowed be your name and all of those implications, it should change how you view prayer. We're now going to shift gears. And we're going to have communion together. And I think it should be a special communion. It's going to be special also that we're going to come up and get them uh, on our own. So I'm going to be reading just a little bit from the first Corinthians passage. It says, what I received from the Lord, what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus on the night of his betrayed, he given thanks, he broke it and said, my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask that, starting with Bloomquist, and just do this side, and starting with Sal, do this side. If you would just file up here and take, take uh, some juice and a cup with bread in it, and then just go back to your, your seat. And I'm going to kind of just talk here while, while we're doing that and just kind of follow along and however close you think, but we put them all separately so that nobody will have to touch any, anyone else's. But I, I told you about this some months ago, is that when Jesus Christ went through, when he was on the cross, it would be, it would be like the, the crushing of grapes. And I stood right here and I told you that it's like a beam going out and our sins were that beam on that beam so that over here these grapes were being crushed and it pulled down on that beam because our sins were the added weight that Jesus Christ 
had to endure when he was on the cross. So there are some of us that know people that have had COVID. There's some of us that maybe know someone who has died that has had COVID, but none of them experienced a fraction of what Jesus Christ experienced when he was on the cross. Not even a fraction. So we are here both to celebrate being back together again as a, as a congregation, which is wonderful, but we're also here the first time back to celebrate the Lord's table and honor him in the work that he has done. We're going to pray for just a minute while people are getting this, and, and when, we're all, when we're all seated, then we can continue. So, Father, we want to be a grateful people. We want to thank you and love you for what you did, both in the skeleton of your Lord's Prayer, where, where you are our Father and hallowed be your name, but also that you willingly and voluntarily, from the beginning of time, planned to go to the cross for our sins. And for this, we want to remember and we want to be eternally thankful. So, Father, we ask that you bless this church, that you bless other churches that they are seeking to gather in some shape or form so that they can both stay connected and they can worship the Savior that they love. So, Father, we ask that this would pass. It would pass quickly. Churches around us would be able to gather again and that they would have a fervor in worship that they never knew before. In your name we pray. Amen. As it says, it says, Jesus took the bread first, and when he had given thanks, we did. We just did. We gave thanks. He broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. For those of you that are partaking, this represents the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is symbolic of the suffering that he went through when he was on the cross. And it is this that we remember that he didn't have to do this. There was no compulsion he had to do this. He did it because he loves his children. The simple, he loves his children so much that he'd be willing to go to the cross. It says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. And remember to me. Let's all stand. Let's pray together. Be a thankful people that we're here. Be a thankful people. You're not just punching your card that you went to church or that you were so happy to see the people. This is, this is part of it. Be a thankful people that you can worship the one you love, that you can be in the house of the Lord, that you can freely partake of communion. These churches were closed by governmental authorities. Thank the Lord that they are open, that we can be here. So let's pray together. Father, we want to be a grateful people, not just for a few seconds on Sunday when we do communion or, a, or because we haven't heard a sermon in, in person for a while, but we want to be a thankful people because you alone are worthy of praise. You are alone are worthy to be lifted up and glorified and honored. And we want to have a heart of a grateful people that comes to you as a loving father. You love to have you love it that we have access to you, and we should take advantage of that and hallow your name because it has so many meanings and all of them are wonderful. So, Father, we ask that you bless us as we go and thank you, Jesus, that we're able to gather people. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures.
Thank you all for coming.